podcasting world. Welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, Cole Swanson. Cole, what's up, man? Doing good. Happy to be here because I almost like died on the way over. Oh, yeah? What happened? Stuck in like a monsoon. Mm. It's been raining for three days. Everybody's got their hazards on, going slow, forgetting how to drive, hydroplaning. It's great. It's, tr- but it's a war zone out I there. I made it. Trying to get to the podcast room. What's what's the saying? Uh, rain, sleet, snow, all that good stuff. Fire, so, something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. It's a great saying. Going to podcast, but you're going to podcast anyway. <laughs> that's cool. So uh, you've uh, you went to work all weekend. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. I actually got to go to my um, brother's baby shower. He's got one on the way. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Congrats to him. Otherwise, yeah, just working. See, uh, how's he feeling about that? A little nervous. Um, doesn't seem to be. Oh, that's good. Usually takes things head on, I guess. There you go. Got to. What about you? Just been off this weekend? Yeah, off this weekend. And, uh, yeah, it's bad to go to some training in Myrtle Beach on Friday. So that was a long Friday. That's fun. Yeah. Other than that, normal, normal. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so today's episode is going to be a little bit different because we're going to take it like way down a notch as far as we're going back to basics. <laughs> yes. I don't know that we've done this yet. I don't think so. Well, I mean, you know, there might be people out there who are like, "Wait a minute, all your episodes are basic." <laughs> right. We're going to go super basic, <laughs> even more basic. <laughs> so, we're going to actually go back to like real, I mean, pharmacology like 101, you know, basic uh, absorption, distribution, metabolism, you know, kinetic type things. And um so we're going to kind of, and the reason we're doing this is because I feel like we have a lot more followers now who are not necessarily in pharmacy school or not practicing professionals. Um, we have a lot of nursing students that are following us, things like that. So um, I want to do something that, you know, can definitely benefit anyone, everyone who listens. And so we're going to try to start with this. That way it's a good refresher for anyone who's already gone through some basic pharmacology, but uh, hopefully we'll bring some stuff back and... For those of you who are like super bored by this, sorry. And for those of you who just had an anxiety attack when he said kinetics, well, it won't be it's like not gonna, it's not going to change. <laughs> yes, we're still going to do it, and it's not going to be that. But bad. But it won't be that bad now. Be a pretty chill, chill we're, version of kinetics. We're going to make it exciting. Well, maybe. Mm, I don't think you can really. But uh, so I guess you know, and we can talk some about pharmacodynamics as well. But I think pharmacokinetics is more um, what we're going to stick with. We'll see how it goes. We don't really have an, a, a true game plan for the, for this, but we'll go go through. The Do best we, we have can. it? Though? No, not no. really. Yeah, kind of shows. So he said we're going to focus on kinetics, right? So there is a difference between pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. Um, essentially, it's all how things work in the body or how uh, the body works on things, right? So pharmacokinetics is how the body affects a drug, so that's what ADME is, A-D-M-E, what he was talking about, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. Pharmacodynamics is what a drug does to the body, so usually what you're going to see as a result of taking the drug. Um, and then there's, you know, there's detailed things um, on a molecular level like receptor signaling, um, toxicities, uh, and uh, therapeutic index that you have to be concerned about. That's what um, those two terms are. Yep, absolutely. And so, you know, I, I like to think of like 
pharmacokinetics kind of happening, I guess, first and kind of starting at the process when you first intake a drug or um, it gets administered. And then from there, the pharmacodynamics that, like Cole said, that response that you get kind of from it, whether it's toxicity or actual efficacy of effectiveness of the drug itself, kind of happens uh, after the fact. Um, But I guess to start off with, let's just talk about absorption, because that's going to be the first step in the process. And... Um, you know, you, you take a drug, what actually is happening and, you know, where is it being absorbed? Right. Um, all that good stuff. So I, let's start off with oral absorption because I think that's going to be the most common. Um, you know, the, the absorption through an oral route is obviously going to start with the stomach um, and then it's going to move from there to the small intestine or we like to call that the gut. Um, that is where a lot of the majority of our absorption happens um, when we take drugs orally. Um, from there... You're gonna get some. Uh, you're gonna get some of that drug to be absorbed through the small intestine into the hepatic portal vein um, to be taken directly to the liver um, to be metabolized, and then from there, it's either going to get kind of shuttled back um, into the small intestine to be excreted, or it's going to be transported into systemic circulation and uh, entered into the actual system into your blood, and that's where it's gonna have its most um, effect and kind of how much drug you start with versus how much is uh, actually getting to that systemic circulation is where the the ticket is as far as effectiveness of the drug and we'll talk a little bit more about that right because that depends depends on um, metabolism in right a lot of senses uh, before a drug to be absorbed it has to first be um, or dissolution first has to occur uh, so when you take a drug orally it's going to be broken down and it's going to dissolve into the the GI tract uh, and the active ingredient will be released from the dosage form, and that's where you're going to have the um, following steps that will cause the effect of the drug. Um, drugs can um, dissolute. Is that a word? Mm, sure. I'm going to make it a word. Yeah. Uh, at different rates, depending on the inactive ingredients uh, that are used. Sometimes, whether you have food on your stomach or not, um, and also dosage form whether it's a capsule or tablet, whether it's enteric-coated, um, oral uh, absorption doesn't, isn't, um, isn't limited to tablets and capsules, also liquids, um, and some tablets dissolve in your mouth and don't even get swallowed, and they're absorbed equally. So all that's absorption, but uh, I guess we're focusing more right now on absorption in the gut. Yeah, and, and like Cole said, so they're, the enteric-coated tablets they are designed specifically to kind of degrade in an acidic environment, but the actual dissolution where it lets the active ingredient out doesn't happen until you can reach a basic environment like the intestine. And so they're designed to not only protect the person from having issues in the stomach, but also to protect the drug itself from the stomach contents because a lot of the drug you first take gets broken down in the stomach, gets through that, and then whatever's left over will get absorbed. And so you're already taking some of the percentage of the drug away by the time it even gets to the small intestine. This is hopefully to kind of limit that and limit how quickly it can get absorbed in the first place. Right. So, um, you know, the the big thing is looking at how soluble, I guess, a drug is um, because oral drugs are dissolved in the GI fluids, like I said. But um, poorly soluble drugs are going to be generally lipophilic. And so we think of them as having kind of poor systemic absorption because they're not going to uh, become absorbed quite as easily. Whereas freely soluble drugs um, that are hydrophilic, we would think of them as generally having pretty solid systemic absorption um, because it's going to get dissolved in the GI fluids and then that 
easily passes through um, the intestine into the uh, circulation. Um, there's a whole bunch of different types of transporters that are used in order to get a drug from the side, the lumen side of the intestine through and in, um, into the going into that hepatoportal vein. And so, um, you know, there's lots of different, you know, things we could talk about here, but if we remember things like passive diffusion, um, from like probably general biology in undergrad, um, you know, passive diffusion is basically that movement of drugs from an area of high concentration, in this case, the gut lumen, um, to an area of lower concentration, the blood. Um, and so energy isn't necessarily required, uh, in that case. So, you know, we think of it just kind of going through some sort of a channel, maybe some sort of, um, you know, just this membrane that it's going through, whereas active transport is where drugs are actually shuttled um, across the gut wall via some type of a transporter. Mm -hmm. And that transporter does require energy, requires some sort of nutrients, whatever it is, um, uh, electrolytes, but they are going to push that drug through the through that membrane based on um, energy consumption and through some sort of a transporter. And that transporter is oftentimes where we see um, certain interactions happen where drugs are not getting absorbed or we're having, you know, we always think of drug-drug interactions happening at the metabolism point, but we definitely have to worry about this in um, situations of um, things not being absorbed correctly from the gut in the first place before it even has a chance to be observed, right. absorbed or um, metabolized rather. Um, so when you're thinking about like drug characteristics, I guess, you know, we have to think about, like I said, lipophilicity of the drug, um, and also the drug concentration, drug dosage form, um, and then also uh, if whether it's a weak acid, um, weak base. So if it's a weak acid, it's going to become trapped in a basic environment. If it's a weak base, it's going to be trapped in an acidic environment, so it won't even get through the stomach in the first place. So there's a lot of things that kind of go into um, the thought process of these drugs when they're first being presented, I guess, through those clinical trials and kind of getting through to, to get to human studies, they have to come up with, you know, the best rate of getting these drugs absorbed into the system in the first place. But when there's multiple dosage forms available, it's also something to keep in mind, too, if you're thinking about how you're going to administer a drug um, and for the best way to get that absorbed. I, I guess the way I always think about that, like vancomycin is a good um, example. So mm -hmm. if we're trying to figure out you know, if somebody has C. diff infection in the, in the gut and we're trying to figure out whether we should administer the uh, vancomycin orally or IV like it's typically given. Um, if we think about the actual absorption of vancomycin when you give it orally, it's almost completely passed through, not absorbed at all into systemic circulation when you give it orally. And so in that particular case, we want to take advantage of that property and let it go through the intestine and go to the colon where the infection is and hopefully treat the infection. So that's like one of those cases where by knowing how the drug is absorbed, what its effects are when it is absorbed, it kind of helps us make a decision clinically on where, how we would want to administer the drug. Right. And you mentioned drug interactions. We always think of them in the metabolism portion, but a good example of uh, in really any drug that would affect um, the stomach's acidity or um, how basic it is can affect absorption and be a drug interaction in that sense. So one good example would be PPIs, um, also H2s, any drug that requires an acidic environment, that would be a drug interaction um, on the absorption front. So those things are always good to consider. Anything else on oral absorption? Um, also certain transporters too that we should kind of be aware of. So as far as like our influx transporters, so 
Um, we have like uh, OTEP, um, organic anion transporter, polypeptide, and usually it's OTEP-B is the real common one that I say. Um, that's a, a transporter that's purpose is to bring drugs into the system. And one of the things that I always think about with that is, you know, the, the fixafenity in Allegra. Because if you take um, Allegra by mouth and then you were to drink uh, orange juice or grape juice or any kind of uh, fruit juice, really, um, that blocks that OTEP transporter and the flux, um, almost a flux, fexafenidine <laughs> rather, is not able to be absorbed. And so we, we, it looks like the drug's not working, but in reality, it just was never absorbed in the first place. So um, that's something there that I always think about with that one. And then we have transporters as well that are made for kind of kicking the drug back out of the system. So it gets, let's say it gets absorbed. Um, your body's natural reaction when something foreign is absorbed is to kick some of that back out. So there's an efflux transporter called P-glycoprotein. And that one, um, it's responsible for kind of kicking it back out of that hepatic portal vein back into systemic uh, or back into the intestine to be excreted in the feces. And so some of the drugs um, are worked on by P-glycoprotein, so they get absorbed through the one transporter and then kicked right back out into the intestine through that P-glycoprotein transporter. So if we have a drug that inhibits or induces P-glycoprotein, because, um, you know, we have a drug, we've already taken into account how much of that is going to be excreted um, through a P-glycoprotein route, and so we've accounted for that in the dosing. Well, if we give something that inhibits that P-glycoprotein, now I'm getting way more absorption of the drug than I thought I would, and, you know, it could, in, could induce uh, toxicity. So something to kind of keep in mind. Um, those are just a few examples. There's so many different transporters we could spend here all day going through them but those are just a couple of examples of transporters we have to think about when we're giving things orally i think digoxin is a peak like a protein inhibitor is it could be wrong about that but i remember it from my um naplex study guide just random yeah so that's oral absorption uh so one good thing to remember about iv administration of drugs when doing calculations or just generally is that um when you give something iv it's going to be 100 percent bioavailable um, and bi- bioavailability is basically the extent to which a drug is absorbed into systemic circulation so when you uh, take something orally it is not going to be 100 percent absorbed there's a lot of um breakdown that happens between your mouth and the gut and the small intestine to where it crosses the lumen and um, uh, hepatic recirculation that uh, decreases bioavailability. So frequently, um, or almost never, you're going to get 100% bioavailability orally. Sometimes you can get close, but not 100%. IV, you're injecting it straight into the blood, and so all of that active ingredient is going to go straight into the blood, 100% bioavailability. Um, You might see this uh, as percent F if somebody was to write it out. Mm-hmm. That's what they call bioavailability for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it's Greek or something. Um, a high bioavailability would be considered being over 70%. Low would be, of course, less than 10%. And um, anywhere in between is not high or low. And uh, this isn't, it's not always important because a lot of times a drug is studied. And so, you know, you don't have to really worry generally about how bioavailable, how bioavailable it is uh, when you're trying to decide whether you want to use it or not. But it's a good thing to know as far as drug interactions go, and especially for um, things like antibiotics when you're um, trying to determine if you're going to uh, essentially kill the infection or not because you might have to meet certain um, area under the curve metrics at that point. Yep. Um, 
So obviously IV use is going to be really good for things like emergency use when you need to get the drug in the system right away. Um, you know, the the only the issue we always would worry about with that is we're obviously going to have an increased risk of adverse effects because we're getting a much higher potential drug concentration in the system. Um, and once it's in the system, we have limited time before we can actually do something about, you know, its effects on the system. Um, so there's definitely uh, times to use IV where we, we absolutely would have to, but um, that's oftentimes where I think there's some confusion as far as when you're comparing oral to IV, a lot of times the doses are so much different because the bioavailability is so potentially so different. And there's other drugs like levofloxacin that has such a high bioavailability that the IV in the oral is almost the same. Right. Um, certain loop, most of the loop directs except for furosemide are basically one-to-one. Right. So it just kind of depends on the drug you're you're dealing with. But for other drugs, when you inject IV, you take out um, all the variables. You know mm-hmm. you're going to get that amount of drug. Oral uh, oral um, administration, especially for certain drugs that um, have a low bioavailability or have a tight therapeutic index, there's a lot of variables. Like we mentioned, just having food on your stomach can make a huge difference. Uh, and so sometimes in an emergent situation, they want to take those variables out and just give all of it IV. So um, some other routes of administration, obviously, that are out there, um, like Cole mentioned earlier, buccal um, or sublingual. So these are actually given orally, but they're not swallowed. And so it's either underneath the tongue or in the cheek where it's absorbed. Um, That can help with, um, you know, direct absorption into the systemic venous circulation. Um, So you're going to bypass that hepatic portal circuit. Um, the intravenous, like we've already said, but also like there's IM, there's sub-Q where we're injecting things, but just not into the vein directly. Um, rectal is always a great one <laughs> to avoid some of that first pass effect. Yeah, we don't really like it here in the U.S., but um, I think uh, European countries, they're, they're like all about it. Yeah. You know, suppositories and whatnot, they don't care. Yeah, they're all for their game. Topical, transdermal, um, things are given, uh, put on the scan to be absorbed, can be administered for um, local effects or systemic effects, mm-hmm. like something like fentanyl um, can be given topically, but it's made to be absorbed systemically. So all good things to keep in mind. Yep. And something else that can affect uh, absorption, oral absorption that we didn't mention was um, like your microbiome or mm, um, yes. anaerobic microflora, microflora if it's kind of messed up. Uh, so you had multiple antibiotics or something else going on that can actually affect absorption in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. We see that with like, um, birth controls and antibiotics. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. All right. So distribution. So we're done with the A. Sure. Made it. Unless you got something else. That's all I got. Um, so distribution is the process by which the drug is actually moved from systemic circulation into various tissues, organs in the body. Um, and then depending on the drug's physical, chemical type properties, that's going to determine, I guess, you know, where it's, whether it stays in the plasma or whether it's actually deposited in some of these certain tissues and whatnot. Um, so, you know, the factors that can kind of favor this passage of... Um, 
these drugs across certain membranes and really increase the drug distribution into various tissues and whatnot. Um, we would see drugs with like that are high, have, have are considered high lipophilicity, um, low molecular weight drugs, unionized drugs and low p- protein binding. So they're not going to be binding to like albumin, um, High lipophilicity, for example, if we have a statin, mm-hmm. right, that is causing some uh, myopathy, myalgias, then, you know, if we give a drug that is considered to have, considered to be more of a hydrophilic statin, um, like pravastatin or rosuvastatin, then in theory, we should be able to cut down on some of those myopathies, myalgias, because the drug wouldn't be able to pass as easily into the tissue and kind of stays more in circulation. And um, we do kind of see that with some of our data that we have. So, um you know, that's something that not, it doesn't affect everyone equally, but it is something that can kind of play a role in avoiding some of those adverse effects. Right. So on the other hand, something that is more hydrophilic is going to favor staying in the bloodstream as opposed to diffusing into the uh, tissue. So that might be favored in, uh, in certain situations. Right. Um, you know, as far as protein binding goes, um, albumin I mentioned, um, that's going to be the primary protein that we're worried about when it comes to drug drug binding. Um, there's others as well, but um, a drug that is very highly protein bound um, may not give us the exact response that we want because we want a free drug, the free form of a drug in order to actually interact with certain receptors. Um, so if we have you know, a drug like uh, phenytoin, for example, um, we want to know how much phenytoin is in the system um, because we want to be able to buy it. We want it to be able to bind to those receptors, stop someone from being able to have a seizure. Um, if the phenytoin, which is very highly bound to albumin, um, binds to that phenytoin binds to the albumin, um, it's not able to interact with and stop a seizure from happening. So when we draw levels, a lot of times we try to get a free phenytoin level to get a more accurate example of how much phenytoin is actually available in the system for the person. Um, so if, if the albumin is low, then we would have more free drug um, than we would expect, and we could experience more adverse effects or toxicities. If we have higher albumin than we think, we might actually get the same um, therapeutic response that we would be expecting. So that could also be a problem. And similarly, when you're looking at thyroid labs, you're frequently looking at free T3 and free T4, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't include the amount of T4, T3 that is bound, I guess T4 really, that is bound and is not active. And uh, hmm, I think that storm has moved our way, huh? Yeah, you hear that lightning? <laughs> but, um, and we won't go t- too much into uh, the f- various fluid compartments of the body. Basically, you know, you're thinking total body of water kind of gets broken into intracellular and extracellular, and then extracellular gets broken down further into the plasma and the interstitial um, fluid. Yeah, that matters more if you're really when you're doing calculations or yeah. for fluids. Right. It's really important for fluids. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, the volume of distribution is a term we use a lot, and that is relating to the amount of drug in the body um, compared to the concentration of the drug in the blood or plasma. So, you know, if we think about volume of distribution, if this is like an equation, just the amount of drug in the body divided by the amount in the drug in plasma equals, you know, that that V with a lower case D next to the volume of distribution. So if a, a drug has a low volume of distribution, it's going to stay more so in the system, um, in the in the blood rather than circulation. So you think of it as being like eight, four to eight liters volume of distribution. It's just very low, um, similar to something like blood. 
medium um, is going to distribute more into the extracellular space, um, but not necessarily deep into like tissues and whatnot. And then if it has a high volume of distribution, it's going to be pushed even further more in, so into the actual tissues and, um, you know, various compartments of the body. Right. This can matter when you're looking at um, site of action and where you want the drug to work. Um, some drugs have a higher volume of distribution in certain parts of the body as opposed to others. Um, but that's all not on the basic level that we're sticking at, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. (laughs) We can carry it away. (laughs) But, um, yeah, anything else on volume distribution? We'll do, we'll have to do a podcast and just talk about different equations and whatnot one day. That would be so exciting. So exciting. (laughs) Riveting. Stay stay tuned for that. Stay tuned. All right, so once a drug gets, um, you know, absorbed, then we have to figure out what the body needs to do with it, right? Correct. So it's absorbed, it's distributed, um, and now the body's like, what the heck, get this out of here, because that's what the body does. For some reason, I feel like I remember in farm chem going through, like, phase one and phase two reactions, and I don't know if I was just, like, sleeping during that whole section, but it's so bad on that section. It was like, I don't, I don't even know why. It was yeah. not good, yep. Well, here's a chance to redeem yourself. I am redeeming myself. It only took, what, seven years? Yes, <laughs> 10 years later. All right, so um, there's lots of different um, factors that have to that play a role in drug metabolism. So phase one, phase two reactions, like Cole was saying, um, genetic factors can play a role, um, and then other drugs that can either induce or inhibit drug metabolism uh, also play a very big role. And so, you know, these are all things we have to kind of take into account when we're looking at, especially a patient that has multiple medications, or if we're going to add a medication to what they're already taking, we have to know how it's affected by all these things. Right. So, you know, I mentioned earlier, if you, if you take a drug um, by mouth, it's going through the stomach into the intestine, gets absorbed into that hepatic portal vein, um, and sent to the liver. So when it goes to the liver, um, there are two different types of uh, metabolism reactions. So phase one and phase two, um, those are going to either get the, get the drug, um, change the drug, get it more, um, ready to be, I guess, utilized. And then there's also, it's getting it ready to be excreted uh, and gotten rid of in the body. Right. The liver is really the happening place when it comes to metabolism. Yeah. It's a solid place. You might hear people say stuff like, um, yeah, this drug is metabolized by the kidneys. Not really. It just kind of means that it's not highly metabolized and it's being excreted by the kidneys. So the happening place for metabolism is definitely the liver. And, you know, there's also things like glucuronidation, sulfation. There's a whole bunch of different types of reactions that happen there. So we'll go through some of those. But, you know, the first one is, and we've already mentioned it a couple of times, but first pass effect, so hepatic um, extraction. Um, This is where, you know, drugs, when, again, you're going through that... um, oral absorption going through that hepatic portal system um, are first basically broken down and the metabolism is started for the very first time before the drug has ever actually entered the systemic uh, circulation. Um, And so, you know, we have things like in our phase one metabolism that usually starts the process off, um, which is usually our oxidation reduction reactions. They're done by our CYP450 enzyme system. So those are the ones that if you're if you've been dealing with pharmacology, you should be very familiar with, and uh, you know those are those sips are found primarily like colsid in the liver. There are some sips that are available in the intestine, the lungs, and kidneys as well, but just not nearly to the extent mm-hmm. um, that the liver has. Um, the but the like three three A four is actually um, found in the gut, and we think of that as a very um, 
common sip that we deal with. But 2D6 and a lot of our other common ones are all found in the liver. And if all that's gibberish to you, basically sips are cytochrome, cytochrome, P450 enzymes is what it stands for. And that's just what do enzymes do? They chew things up, they break things down. That's what these sips are. They break down drugs. There's many, 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 many of them. There's some big ones Mike just mentioned too, 3A4, 2D6. Uh, and each drug is going to be metabolized usually by certain ones. Um, and some are uh, more highly metabolized by some than others. And some um, groups of people, uh, because like we mentioned, genetic factors play a big role. We'll get into that a little later, um, might have overactive sips. Uh, so certain drugs might be less or more effective because of that in certain people. And it's, uh, it's good to be aware of. Yeah. And so these are, this family of enzymes, like Cole said, these are there primarily to metabolize endogenous compounds as well. So I think we always just assume like these are there just for the sole purpose of breaking down drugs. But mm-hmm. These also do a lot of things right. internally in the body. Serve other purposes. And so we are just utilizing those enzymes um, because we're making drugs that are based on other endogenous compounds. And so the body's u- utilizing its own resources to kind of figure out what this foreign object is in it and breaking it up and getting rid of it. Um, but there is a whole bunch of SIPs, like he said, um, and the way they're named, um, you'll see things like 1A2, uh, 2B6, 2C19. Those are basically just talking about the um, different families that they belong to um, and describing them from more of a medicinal chemistry type route um, that we don't really care about. It's we really just, we ar- just like to memorize stuff. It's really an arbitrary numbering and alphabetical system. As sure. far as I can tell, I'm sure there was a, I'm sure there was a method of the madness at some point. But yeah. I never had to learn it. So no, neither did I. And one thing on first pass, um, if, if you hear, you might hear that thrown around sometimes, especially if you're talking to a pharmacist, they might say that this drug has high first pass metabolism. All that means is that if you take it orally, it's going to be highly metabolized. And so certain drugs that are like really high, highly metabolized because of that, they have very low bioavailability orally. So you would want to look into an alternative route like IV, transdermal, um, or, you know, injectable IM, that kind of thing. And so, you know, again, going back to original thing, the, the phase one, um, usually this is a, a SIP, react, SIP enzyme that's working on this um, phase one. Um, we get basically the drug is, is having like the addition of some sort of a functional group to the original molecule. So you have the parent molecule and it gets this uh, chemical reaction that happens to it. You get this addition of, it could be, you know, uh, a hydroxyl group that gets added or an ammonium group that gets added. Um, there's several different things, um, carboxylic acid. There's lots of things that can be added to the drug that basically turns it into its, um, you know, taking it from the parent compound and into the active metabolite. Um, and not always, I shouldn't say uh, active metabolite because it can, sometimes it activates it further. Sometimes it just mm-hmm. takes the drug. Um, but its main function, like in nature, I guess, is to take that drug and kind of prepare it for the next state with phase two metabolism because ultimately your body's trying to excrete it. And so it takes this and it's kind of preparing these functional groups so that the phase two enzymes can work on it even more effectively. Um, but in the body, we've kind of hijacked that system a little bit with our drugs to be able to utilize those functional groups that we get to either enhance the effectiveness of the drug or ensure that the drug gets excreted in a timely manner so that right. it doesn't cause toxicity. Right. Which is why if somebody is having liver issues, um, dosing can yeah. change or if somebody's having kidney issues, dosing can change because it affects the uh, metabolism excretion. Right. 
So phase two metabolism, right? So phase one was getting it ready for kind of the next phase, phase two. Phase two reactions are usually conjugation reactions, um, and those are designed to add certain compounds, certain functional groups to the drug that are going to increase its hydrophilicity, which is then going to increase its ability to be excreted because we want it to be excreted in the urine, so we want to increase the hydrophilicity of the drug. Right. So, you know, there's things like glucuronidation, um, there's acetylation, glutathione, methylation. There's all kinds of different enzymes that can uh, act on this, these, these compounds in this phase two metabolism. Um, but typically speaking, it takes a drug from its active form and makes it more of an inactive compound, and it's at that point hopefully ready to be excreted from the body. Um, and then, you know, besides phase one and phase two metabolism, there's there's a whole bunch of other kind of miscellaneous, I guess, enzymes as well. There's things like alcohol dehydrogenase. Um, so there's, there's several of them that we, aldehyde dehydrogenases. There's several different enzymes that act on metabolism that are kind of, uh, you know, above the level that we're trying to go right now. But know that there's so many different enzymes that work on metabolism and um, certain drugs we have to consider um, these enzymes more so than others. But yeah, for the most part, the ones you'll hear about are going to be our CYP450s and then our phase two um, metabolism drugs as well, right. glutathione and things like that. Yeah, I feel like just practically just being aware of phase two reactions is fine, but the majority of what you're going to see is going to be the SIPs. And mm -hmm. when it comes to drug interactions, it's almost always going to have to do with um, the cytochrome P450 drugs. Yep. Uh, with, so three quarters of drugs are metabolized in some way by a SIP. Uh, and half of those are metabolized by 3A4. So that's a really important one. So anytime you see something that affects 3A4, uh, always good to be aware of and to do a drug interaction check. Because some drugs are substrates, um, some drugs are inhibitors, and some drugs are inducers. So a substrate of a CYP450 would mean that uh, it's broken down by that enzyme. Mm -hmm. uh, an inhibitor would mean that it might bind to that enzyme and inhibit it from breaking other things down. And an inducer may mean that it is, um, it's essentially boosting a SIP so that it's going to break things down more than it should. Um, there's a multitude of examples. Uh, one example is like uh, simvastatin and amlodipine. Um, so amlodipine, I believe, is an inducer, uh, or not an inducer, sorry, yeah, it's yeah. an inhibitor. So it would decrease the breakdown of simvastatin because it is a substrate of um, SIP384. So if you're taking high doses of simvastatin with high doses of amlodipine, you could potentially have um, toxic levels of simvastatin and have side effects like muscle pain and potentially rhabdomyolysis in a, in a yeah, severe situation. Yeah, so essentially you can get 20 milligrams of simvastatin. Um, when you take that with more than 5 milligrams of amlodipine or 10 milligrams of amlodipine, that's basically taking that 20 milligrams of simvastatin and and making it turn into like an 80 milligram dose right? Um, because it increases that area of the curve so high. And, uh, you know, just like Cole said, you're, you're things, things like that you have to take into consideration because you could have some serious side effects if you don't consider um, how much of the drug is going to be sticking around if you give it with an inhibitor. Um, but, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too because I think substrate is such a weird thing that confuses people. Substrate is such a fancy way of saying act upon by the enzyme. Right. So there's nothing like special about something that is a substrate. It's not anything crazy. It literally just means that drug is broken down by this enzyme. Sounds like a political term. It does. Yeah, I don't know. But um, so when you have things like, uh, and you know a drug is a substrate and you're giving that with an inhibitor or an inducer, um, that's when you have to start figuring out, okay, what's going to happen if I 
if I, you know, do I need to increase the dose? Do I need to decrease the dose? Can I even give them together? Because some drugs are absolute contraindications. You right. can't give them together. So I think they would say don't, just definitely don't go over 20 milligrams of simvastatin with 10 milligrams of lodipine. Right. And uh, so, you know, the it's, it's also, you know, important to know, okay, so an inducer, like Cole said, is going to increase the activity of that enzyme. So if we think about this from like a, a math standpoint, if you have drug X, and it is a it is a substrate of 2C9, CYP2C9, and you give that with a 2C9 inducer. So that drug is basically activated in the system, or is is put in the system, um, and it's doing its thing until it is actually metabolized and excreted. So you're wanting that metabolism to happen at a certain rate. Well, if you give that with a, an inducer, now that metabolism is happening a lot quicker, and now that drug is not able to actually carry out its same response that it normally would because it's being excreted a lot faster than it normally would be. Right. It's like when you're listening to our podcast and you go to the bottom left and there's that 1x, but then you tap it and it goes to 1.5x. And you listen to us really fast. You listen to us really fast. You tap it again and it's going 2x. That's what's happening. So instead of um, our voices talking really fast, the drug is being metabolized and excreted faster than it should. And it's not going to act on the body um, in the same way that it would. Yeah. How dare you speed up our podcast? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just easier to binge, right? Yeah, that's true. Something like that. That's a good example, Cole. Well Thank done. You. Thank you. Um, and then the inhibitors are the exact opposite. Yes. So when you inhibit something, you're going to decrease the activity. Be like slowing us down. You can, to you us can even do that longer. too, right? So you tap it. That's and then the real play. You go to 0.5x, and then we're talking like this, or maybe this—that's how we sound in your mind all get, the time. Then we get super monotone. Right. <laughs> super monotone. <laughs> uh, and so if you um, are inhibiting an enzyme, then you're just like we talked about with simvastatin, potentially toxic levels of that enzyme. Um, some examples would be like warfarin is an inhibitor of 2C9 or 3A4. Those are big sips. Or amiodarone is an inhibitor of 2C9 and 3A4 as well. Um, and so, yeah, if, if, you, if you're inhibiting something, it could potentially have toxic levels. Yeah, I mean, think about that. Like, that's such a good example you just gave because, you know, if you're giving warfarin, which is a substrate. Of yeah, I the, think I said it's an inhibitor. Warfarin is a substrate. Amiodarone is the inhibitor. Sorry. Yeah, and, well, amiodarone in that case, you're, you give it with warfarin, which could very well happen. Someone has AFib, they're on rhythm control, or, yeah, rhythm control, and you're giving warfarin because you didn't read the new guidelines and you didn't want to do a DOAC. <laughs> and so you got them on warfarin. And the uh, amiodarone starts inhibiting that, and all of a sudden now the person's INR is going sky high because that warfarin's sticking around so much longer than we think it would. Or you listen to our critical care podcast and you just want to have them on warfarin so they can reverse it. Whatever. Yeah. Whatever, <laughs> Brian. <laughs> <laughs> no, so, you know, it's something to consider because that could really cause, put the person at risk for a bleed and things like that, so... Um, and then it's a good time to throw in a uh, little uh, little loophole caveat, pro-drugs. Oh, yes, pro-drugs. So pro-drugs, that term is something that we throw around a lot, and that is because a pro-drug is actually something that needs to be metabolized in order to become active. So normally you take a drug, it is active, it's metabolized, and it's getting ready for excretion. This, this is actually waiting on those phase one metabolism in order to become active in the first place. Usually it's because of an absorption issue, like if you were to give the active drug, it would never actually get to where, it would never be absorbed and get to where it needs to go. And so we give this, we give this drug as a pro-drug. Um, it's not active at all until it's acted on by a certain enzyme that activates the drug and allows it to do its therapeutic response. In that particular case, 
a prodrug is the exact opposite of what we just said. Right. So in that case, a prodrug, an inducer of a prodrug is going to give a higher response um, because you're activating more of the drug faster and an inhibitor is actually giving less of a response, um, which is not allowing the drug to become active in the first place. So like clopidogrel, for instance, there was a big concern with clopidogrel because it is a prodrug when you take it and is acted on by 2C19. Well, if you give that drug with something like omiprazole, a PPI, which is a 2C19 inhibitor, um, in that particular case, you are blocking that clopidogrel from becoming active and which is going to then not be able to stop platelets from aggregating and you could potentially have you know, stroke or something like that. Yeah, did that ever pan out as being like clinically significant? No, in fact, there's some studies that show that's not clinically significant, but... Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's for another time. But so to yeah, be, to be safe, some would. I think we actually talked about this in our GERD podcast. But some would switch to pentobarbital. Yeah, yeah, something that's not two C nineteen. But I'm, yeah, it doesn't seem like it's as concerning as people once had thought. Yeah, there was some study that came out, I think, in 2014 that talked about that. And I think it was because they were trying to make a drug that was a it was a combination of clopidogrel and omiprazole together, I think. It's either omiprazole or esomiprazole, I can't remember. But yeah. um, the drug never actually panned out. But the uh, they, they did release their data after, like, they went out of business. <laughs> 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 and uh, like the data showed that it actually wasn't clinically significant as far as a concern. Hmm. So Interesting. Sucks to be those people. But, hey, at least we got some science out of it. Yes, um, so why do we need a pro drug? Yeah, that's the big thing. Like, why do we actually have to have this this idea of you know a pro drug? Like, why would you give an inactive drug in the first place? Um, one of the things to think about is, like I said, absorption of the drug. Um, the example I always use is tenofovir. So, like tenofovir is a antiviral that we give for HIV and Hep B. Um, so, tenofovir by itself, when it's in its active form, cannot get into the plasma to go after the target cell, so like your CD4 or something like that. It stays in the GI tract, can't get through that lumen. And so we have to give it as a prodrug. And so the first one that came out was tenofovir disaproxyl fumarate um, because that's a prodrug of, of tenofovir its active form. It was able to get through that, uh, absorbed through the GI tract into the plasma, and then from there it was able to reach the target cell. Um, now... We've changed that up to be a new prodrug of that same same active compound, which is tenofovir alafinamide, and you can see our episode from last week where we talk about that more in detail. But mm, um, those are just different uh, different examples of why you would need to use that. Because if you were just to give regular tenofovir, that would have zero effect on someone with HIV because it would never actually get to where it needs to go. So you have to give it. It has to be metabolized, and then it becomes active in that form. And then it gets the tenofovir, the actual active tenofovir, gets released at that point. Yeah, it's one of those ways we cheat the body a little bit. Yep. Play it against itself. Genetic polymorphisms? Yeah, so I talked a little bit about uh, genetics and how um, certain dem- demographics might have uh, different SIPs. So uh, you can classify those uh, in, in a few ways. One um, are ultra-rapid metabolizers or extensive metabolizers. Uh, so basically certain cytochrome P450 enzymes might be overactive so if you have a substrate of that SIP, uh, you may get lower than therapeutic levels, lower levels than you want. Uh, there are also poor metabolizers. So this would be like inhibiting the enzyme. Uh, the SIP is not as active as you'd like. So if you have a substrate for that and you're a poor metabolizer of the SIP, you may get toxic levels or side effects. Or with the caveat prodrug, you might not get the active drug that you'd like. Yep. 
All right. Well, we jump on excretion. Let's do finish, excretion. Finish her up. The four, be four for four. So uh, excretion or the elimination um, of the drug is going to happen in multiple pathways. So we've already mentioned glycoprotein. So that's where you absorb the drug from the gut. It gets pumped right back into the gut, for, you know, an efflux back into the gut, um, and it gets excreted via the feces. Um, there's also drugs that can get into that first-pass metabolism sort of situation, but then um, they're transported from those hepatocytes through the um, bile canicula... Can, I can never say this word right. Canicula. You said Hawaiian for a second. Yeah, I did, um, which is then pumped back into the intestine and excreted that way. Um, so it works on the... Uh, those, that bile actually sends it back to... Um, where it came from. And then also, if it does get absorbed into systemic, um, the systemic circulation, then uh, excreted by the kidneys in the urine. So those are three main examples of how things can be excreted and, you know, how they actually get there um, depends on the drug and it's, it's chemistry. Yeah, I think before I said digoxin was a P-glycoprotein inhibitor. It's actually a substrate of P-glycoprotein. Mm. So a little correction there. See, you catch it before the comments Live come out. Live corrections. Live corrections That's before the comments. That's the key. As long as they stay till the end. Yeah. <laughs> otherwise, uh, <laughs> we'll get the email. Get ready to. Yeah, we'll get the email later. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, one of the big things we talk about with excretion is the clearance mm-hmm. of the drug. So yep. it, you know, the rate of elimination and how quickly that um, drug is being eliminated. So one of the big things we have to consider with clearance is. Um, and, and how we're kind of thinking about that is the half-life of the drug. So that's the, the time that's required to change the amount of drug in the body by one half during that elimination process. Um, and, you know, this is used in multiple ways for, you know, one, figuring out dosing schedules for figuring out doses in general of how before we reach like certain toxic levels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, dosing is the big one, though, if a drug only has a 12-hour half-life and we're giving it once a day, it's probably losing a lot of its therapeutic response kind of in the middle of the day versus if we give it twice a day, we're kind of dosing on the half-life, we're allowing the, the concentrations to stay high enough to elicit its true response. Um, doesn't always play out that way, but that's one one thing I always think of when I think of half-life. Yeah, I think it's good to mention because um, people talk half-life a lot, and it's really easy to find. You can just look on Lexicon if they have the half-life listed there. So people will frequently ask me, even patients, they'll say, what's the half-life of this drug? And even if I know and I tell them, you know, you kind of want to ask, like, why are you asking me that? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times they'll say, oh, the half-life's 24 hours, then sweet, by tomorrow it's out of my body. That's not exactly how half-life works. Um, half-life, like Mike mentioned, is the time required to change the amount of drug by one half in the body. Um, so if, you know, the half-life is 12 hours, then you take the drug, well, let's say it's absorbed, Um 12 hours later, half of it is out of the body, not all of it. Um, and so, you know, if you start calculating down, well, another 12 hours will be half of that. Another, another 12 hours will be half of that. By about four to five half-lives, you've got the majority of the drug out of the, out of the body. Um, so if you're, you know, looking into a very significant drug interaction, you want to be really careful just looking at half-life because not all of it's going to be gone. Or if you're, you know, talking about level of effect, it's not always related exactly to half-life. It depends on the drug. Um, so you don't always want to just take half-life at face value. You can 
delve a little deeper if you need to. Yeah. And like you, like Cole was saying, that four or five half laps also plays a role when we think about steady state. So when we think about steady state, we want to, we're thinking more of like the actual physiological like response or physiological state of being at equilibrium with this drug. So if we're giving a drug, you know, we get this certain drug level in the body. If we were to like graphically illustrate this, we get a certain drug level, but then that level starts to, to drop a little bit. Well, before it drops all the way out, it goes, we give another dose and it goes up um, a little bit higher. Well, eventually we reach this kind of plateau where we're, we're releasing or excreting as quickly as, as we are giving another dose the, the, I guess average level stays about the same. And that's what we think of like with steady state. And so um, we want to reach steady state with something before we actually um, change a, a dose or something like that. So something like um, thyroid, we mentioned thyroid earlier. We would want to give, we, we know that like a TSH has a, a around a seven day half-life or so. Um, so we give levothyroxine and we're watching the kind of like the results of how well that your body responded to that specific dose. We want to wait about six weeks, um, before we actually change doses again, because that's how long it's going to take your body to get back to steady state, um, with that new dose. And we can check levels again and see how your body truly responded. If we change it after a week, then we're probably not going to really get the full effects of that dose change and so because we're not a steady state yet and so it's still constant it's still going up a little bit and changing and we could end up giving too much of a drug yep or too little whatever are we going to take on zero order and first order elimination um i guess we can just mention you know real quick the the when you talk about actual kinetics um one of the things that gets discussed is zero order and first order elimination um so just to give a couple quick, uh, I guess, examples um, and definitions. So zero order elimination is the, a constant amount of the drug. So for instance, the milligrams of a drug is being removed over a unit of time. Right. Constant amount of a drug. Right. So like the rate of drug elimination per hour is going to be independent of the drug concentration. So then the same amount of drug is eliminated per hour regardless of how much is in the body. Right. You can basically keep that putting is. it in and putting it in and putting it in. But the way I think about it is there's a cap on how much you can actually get out. So right. um, as you keep putting in, you're going to build up more in the body, but you're going to be eliminating the same amount. And with first order, so if you were to, you know, just describe zero order graphically, we would think about it as a, a, just kind of a straight, you know, line kind of going diagonally down the page, it's, it, but it's, it's straight, it's a constant um, reduction. So as the concentration goes up the, on the Y axis, the X axis also moves out um, because it's taking, it's going to take longer and longer to get rid of that same amount of, um, same amount of drug because right. you can only do so much per time. Whereas with first order, you're getting a constant percent of drug removed per unit of time. And right. so that's going to be actually the rate of elimination is more dependent on the drug concentration that you have. And so more drug in the body, the more that's eliminated per hour. Right. So that, that graph would be more of like a, uh, a curve. Yeah. Like and a long parabola. Yeah. There you go. Um, right. So zero order, you give a hundred milligrams of drug, you're able to excrete 10 milligrams. You give another hundred milligrams, you're still only able to excrete 10 milligrams. So a good example is ethanol or alcohol when you're drinking. So you can only metabolize so much of that no matter how much more you put in your body. 
which is why people get intoxicated when you drink too much, when you um, meet that cap on how much you're able to metabolize over that period of time and you exceed it. Uh, first order, if you give 100 milligrams of a drug, you may start out eliminating 10 milligrams. Then you give another 100 milligrams. Now you're eliminating 20 milligrams, and it goes up like that. So the more you give, the more you can get out, and um, independent of, um, or I, I should say, dependent on the concentration of drug in the body. Yeah, that, It's really easy to... Um, it sound, I, I don't know. Looking at it right now, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's pretty simple. But I always get them confused. Once we start the actual math process, right. it gets more. When you're looking at math, it's like, ooh. And you start talking about first compartment and right. all that stuff. So we'll uh, maybe we'll take that on at some point if, yeah. that's, if you're interested. But, if you're interested. Um, you know, the, the, the big terminology I want you to take away from the excretion portion is, what we've, you know, the half-life steady state. And then also things like GFR. So glomerular infiltration rate um, or something similar as the creatinine clearance. Um, And those are basically going to be used to establish how quickly the kidneys or how effectively I should say the kidneys can uh, filter um, contents. And so if the lower the creatinine clearance, the lower GFR, the worse the renal function. And so, you know, we have these drugs that we know need to be excreted renally, but if the person has a really low creatinine clearance, then we know that we have to decrease the amount of drug we're allowed to put in the body. So um, we, we are giving a lower dose, but it's sticking around so much longer in the body that we, in theory, would be getting the same therapeutic response. Right. So your EMR is usually probably going to calculate this for you. So you can very quickly, if you have a reference of what's a good GFR and what's a bad GFR, you can know. Very quickly, oh, this guy's got a good kidney function or not so much, and we may need to adjust adjust medications based on that. Or, hmm, his kidney function has really declined over the last day or two, and we just started him on lisinopril, so maybe we need to be aware of that. Um, And remember that it's always an estimation. Most uh, people calculate it with the Cockroft-Galt equation, um, which isn't super hard. Uh, There's also the modified diet in renal disease. I think that's an older one, MDRD. Um, people mm-hmm. don't use that as often anymore. And that's, but, um, that's to get GFR specifically. Right. GFR specifically is opposed to uh, creatinine clearance. But frequently, people will just look at creatinine clearance and they use the Cockroft-Galt uh, equation to calculate it. Or you can always do a 24-hour urine collection. Could do that. What? Yep. That's Super pain. fun. But um, also gives you a good idea of creatinine clearance if you need to do that. And I guess it's good to know that usually when you're looking at dosing adjustments in renal disease the FDA um, insert is going to be based on creatinine clearance. So that's why it's more common to use that. Yeah. All right. Anything else with that? I'm talking for an hour about this stuff. That's all I got with ADME, man. So I know that's kind of like a real uh, basic overview. I've been saying that a lot lately, but... Yeah, um, you know, some people might not have thought that was so basic. uh, Well, hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but hopefully that was somewhat beneficial. If there's any of those topics that you guys think is would be really good to kind of go over in detail, um, let us know because we we are trying to look at how we can expand. There are certain things on the podcast, and um, you know whether we need to go into some biochem stuff and some pathophysiology oh, and yay. like you know some of that. Then maybe we can go that route as well. But um, we're always open to suggestions and trying to find ways to improve and make this stuff a little bit more. Um, useful and beneficial to everybody listening. So if uh, you guys have any ideas or you have any one of these topics that we kind of touched on today that you want us to go over like in detail, um, let me know. Send us an email. and uh, Or if you know, you know of any other topics you want us to cover, also send us an email. 
And um, we appreciate everyone listening and you know the support that you guys give. Um, really appreciate all the emails and messages on social media and stuff like that. Uh, the ratings, everything like that's been great. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and taking the time to actually uh, put us in the car with you when you're driving to work or school or whatever. It means a lot. We like being there. <laughs> um, Cole, you got anything else, man? That is all I got, man. All right. Well, we'll see you guys next time, and y'all take it easy.